This is Shaka Ward Speak. Hey, welcome to Shaka Ward Speak. I'm Gareth, as always, with my wonderful co-host, Ryan Letterio. Hello. And we have uh, a big thing coming up, and I'm sure most of you have uh, kind of gotten on board with this. Uh, but Ryan and I, we both teach. Um, and one of the things that is a big part of our life is the start of a new semester. And so we've got that on the horizon, and we can't talk about a semester starting at an art school without talking about something as wonderful as the critique. It's just part and parcel of what we do. It's a big part of how we understand the work we do, how we interact with our students, um, how we interact with our own work, and how we, you know, really work together personally as mm -hmm. well. So uh, critique is a huge part of that, and what we want to talk about today is not necessarily uh, the critique, because we've talked about that before. So if you go back to episode 25, we really covered the idea of the critique and how that kind of works within the studio. And, and, studio and where, yeah, where it comes from historically. And, yeah. Right. Yep. But today what we're going to talk <clears throat> about is how necessary the critique is for what we do. Um, and so, again, it's not the structure or kind of the, the process of critique or some of those ideas that go into it. It's more like why we have it in the first place, what it's good for, what it mm -hmm. can help us with, and what it can actually allow to take place. So can you go a little deeper on that, Ryan? Yeah. I mean, so in a, in a way, if we could, if we could like enjoin uh, studio critique or critique mm -hmm. um, to dialogue or discourse, if we could, if we can kind of like sandwich those two together for a moment and make, and let those run parallel or synonymous, um, that might just be a helpful import in thinking about this discussion. So, you know, the way, the way I've been thinking about it or just, you know, wrestling with this critique is up, up, up in the air right now. There's a lot of, uh, you know, political, political heat around, um, who gets to talk, what they get to say, where it comes from and that kind of thing. And, mm -hmm. and we did try to go in that uh, earlier in, and, um, one of the things that I guess I've been thinking about a lot is the, uh, the, uh, right now things are very, very polarized. Yeah. And, um, and so what has left the equation is discussion in some ways, um, uh, dialectical tension between two points of view, if you will. And so even by us bringing this up, it's ter terribly, un possibly terribly unpopular, mm -hmm. you know, to even, even be who we are saying that, you know, runs, uh, uh, brings with it problems. But I've been having really, as you have, I've been having interesting conversations with colleagues, mm -hmm. like kind of like on the fly and in, in secret almost like it's like we're having really robust conversations, but not in any way that is public or in view. And so um, there's a couple of things I've been thinking about It's one is uh, these conversations, these uh, uh, this critical discourse uh, has to have a reference. Hmm. Uh, so the discourse is with reference to what, right? And so, um, and I mean, in layman's terms, somebody would, might say like, what do you mean by that? Or what are we talking about? Yeah. If we're talking about that idea of right. reference and discourse. Yeah. So if, if we are critically discussing the sun, um, the conversation is anchored by the reference to the sun. So, so the, the criticality, the thinking, the problem solving, all of these things are in direct reference to primarily understanding the phenomena of the sun or whatever, like as an example, or the ocean or just real cheek, cheeky, obvious examples. Right. Um, or the house you're building or whatever, <clears throat> if it's not, then what is the reference? And a lot of times the reference right now is self mm -hmm. and self has accumulated, uh, selves as a reference. So a mass, a mass of people and the conversation is with reference to people, 
part of the difficulty with that, I think, is then then it becomes uh, it feels toxic or dangerous to get critical because you'd be causing injury mm. to people. That's the I think that's one of the prevailing ideas is that um, uh, in so in in place of that, there's a demand for um, kind of like a, a thoroughgoing um, admission to what is the case when it comes to people and and the way forward is feels like it's being charged by a lot of emotions, a lot of heat. Hmm. And so one of the concerns I think coming into the, the school year for a lot of universities is like, how do we have critical discourse around art? Hmm. Because the way that art is often thought about is self-referential. So what, what's really being said is how do we have critical discourse around self, diverse people, diverse points of view and so on. Mm-hmm. And so um, I guess I had this picture of like, you know, being in a, a gallery in my mind, walking around and, you know, you're looking at landscape paintings, these beautiful vistas of places that someone saw mm-hmm. and I'm seeing what someone saw, but I'm also seeing what they wanted me to see in the context of the painting. And then, you know, but I get to leave and go out into a clear sky and take a deep breath. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so I've had this picture in my mind of like everyone at some point needs to get outside and take a deep breath. Yeah. It's like the, the, so so I like feel, backing away from things yeah. almost in a sense, being yeah. able to step yeah, yeah, back yeah. And, and kind of pause. Yeah, almost. pause, take a deep breath. So even if I'm looking at it, like I love John Constable's paintings, just love. Mm-hmm. So even if I'm looking at an incredible John Constable painting, I'm still going to need to step outside that gallery, that museum oh, yeah. and take a deep breath. And the reason why I use that picture is that um, when I do that, the power of the art is not lost on me. It's informing the way in which I come outside and take a deep breath and I look at a sky, an English landscape compared to a landscape in, you know, Richmond or somewhere else. Right. Right. And so what is implicit in that is the fact that the arts mediate our experiences. Art and design is utterly mediatory. So we are living a mediated reality. That's why, you know, when you and I talk about like things like the arts are pervasive they pervade everything. They mediate everything. They're epistemic in how they allow us to acquire knowledge, to grow an understanding, and to obtain knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, not to the, the not to the detriment or exclusion of other uh, ways of knowing, but they even permeate th- those ways in secondary senses. So, like like I've said, so like if you're talking about reading a book, a scientific book on some kind of uh, ecological experience, you know, somewhere in the Mediterranean or something like that, like you're still reading those letter forms are operating in a designed fashion to facilitate uh, clear communication, even possibly true information that underneath of it has facts. Uh, and those facts are more accordant with what you're seeing in front of you than not. Right. Mm-hmm. If you're, you know, a biologist or something like that. So what I'm trying to say is the mediatory, may not be saying that right, but like the, the, um, the mediating experience that is necessary for humans is always at play. And we're so embedded in it that we need a way to step back and take a deep breath. Um, and I, I want to say by taking a deep, a deep, a step back and taking a deep breath from like the, the museum painting is not demeaning the museum painting. Mm-hmm. It's allowing the museum painting as a, as a stand in for anything uh, uh, to actually have the fullness of its effect on us um, because our perceptions are enhanced, influenced, and shaped such that when we step outside of those experiences, we are enhanced, shaped, 
differentiated individuals or communities uh, dealing in a more direct sense with the reality that is. Let me let me see if I can pop yep. another metaphor in here to 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 maybe make it clear. Uh, just because I'm I'm tracking what you're saying, I sure. want to just clarify some things here. So if if we were talking like in a relational sense, mm-hmm. um, let's say that you know uh, one of my best friends for life has written me a letter, and I read that letter, and they talk about the things they've been doing, and you know how you know they're doing some traveling, they're going here, they're doing that. Um, they'd love to you know visit and see what's going on where I am. And then a few weeks later, I actually get to step back from that letter and see that person mm-hmm. that is referenced in that letter. That's right. That provides a context that allows the letter and the individual to be brought much more into much more clarity. That's right. Because the context is not the letter devoid of the person. That's right. That's but right. But it is the letter in reference to the reality of the person that would be there in front of me. Yeah. So and is so that the, kind of the same thing? Yeah. So then, you're, so, then, so then let's say you spend some time with that person. And then you depart and you have the letter. Well, now the letter is charged with more. It takes on it, new meaning. Yeah, it, 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 it enhances in uh, value, perceptual value or sentimental value or meaning because they're in, in tandem with each other. They're enhancing one another. And, and that doesn't even negate possibly the beauty of the paper the, the letter was written on or the, yeah. the handwriting. Yeah. There's, so, so, right, there's all these other factors that uh, have their own quality and characteristics that uh, in and of themselves are wonderful or enriching or uh, compelling or however you resonant, whatever. So um, part of the problem right now is I see it and it's a problem for me to even be saying that for some people, I just got to keep acknowledging that I'm not, you know, I don't think you and I are oblivious to this fact, but and nonetheless um, is we don't know how to make, we're, we're struggling to make sense of things because I think we're overrun by the mediation of things. Yeah, I mean, and I think we brought this up uh, in different ways in yep. a number of episodes, right? We talked about the infinite scroll of social yep. media. We yeah. talked about, you know, all of these sort of things, but also the the need for people to be in your studio with you talking yep. about your work and giving you other reference points. So, yeah. so it seems that we're, we're very comfortable with mediation. Yeah, we're uh, very we're very comfortable with it. And I'm not anti mediation because it's no, part and parcel. It's it's so it's the necessity of it. And we've been talking about this. And so, but so, but here's the thing. Um, I, I've alluded to this over the years in different ways, and depending on who knows me, we, you know, you and I have had these conversations, and I've been sort of gr- grinding this this axe for a while. If you've been ever been in my class, and you're one of my former students, um, the world, um, the world, i.e., everything plus the stuff we make. So I don't want to. Okay, so here's the. Okay, so let me let me work back. I want to undo the tension between or the, the dialectical tension, the kind of, the kind of, um, you know, antithetical like culture versus nature. Right. Sort of, sort of deal. What I want to do is say that uh, culture is an extension of that, which is the case or that, that which some people call natural. Um, And so what I want to say is that as we work to extend or cultivate out of the world we find ourselves in, um, we are extending, enculturating, we're uh, building, making, bringing forward, um, you know, through expressive means and materials, um, you know, artifacts of all kinds, design solutions of all kinds, like 
that's what we're doing. And so I don't think they're as tightly pitted against each other as we've sometimes thought about it in, in recent, you know, uh, critical thinking about these things. Like there was like things like Thomas Aquinas or someone said that it was, it's like, there was like grace nature. If you like look at it in a historical lineage, nature ate grace. So there's this idea of like, there's a deity and there's a grace, there's a common grace imbued in, in reality. And so, uh, what Aquinas posited was that, um, nature, naturalism as the supreme ate up grace. So it's like, it took the power out of the sky and put it in the ground. So very complimentary to like Plato and Aristotle. Yeah, yeah. And then what happened from there is you have your like sublime romantics, your uh, transcendentalists and out of that culture ate up nature. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's a way the story's been told to us. So we've kind of almost pitted these two things against each yes. other instead of looking at them as like maybe uh, parts of a larger whole yeah. or things that work better together. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think, you know, this is a really interesting thing when we talk about critique because I think that sometimes we can kind of uh, pick our favorites, mm-hmm. like even in a critique setting, like, you know, we've all had those those students and or maybe even those teachers who like you just know during the critique they're gonna talk about this thing. Yeah. Right? They they pick that and it's not that that's problematic. Right. But it's the reduction of everything else. Yeah. Everything that else takes is reduced away to from it. it. That's right. You so the reduction in in the art there's the uh the pitting against each other that becomes uh potentially problematic because uh confirmation bias, you look for what you, you pre presuppose mm-hmm. to the exclusion of what else is there. That shifts your perception. Yeah. So, so because uh, we can have true, truer, truest perceptions. Um, we, you know, there's a lot of nuance to this, right? And so, in all of it, I think what we need is is again coming back to this idea that we we're, we're going to have to find a way of, of stepping back. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I bring up the whole nature thing, if you will, but I'm 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 putting qu- that in quotations because I don't want to. Um, deify nature or talk about nature in, uh, I don't want to personify nature, but I, I so I, I tend to use like almost, um, you know, I think Heidegger um, used the, he talked about uh, uh, things in terms of the earth and the world, so the earth right. world. So mm-hmm. earth was the planet, but the world extended beyond the planet, but was subsumed or, or uh, inherent in the planet. So there was some, some, some dynamism between, but, uh, or dynamism implicit in this, uh, the scope of this earth world idea. And so I'm not even saying that, but to kind of get us out from under. So when I, when I talk about the world, I'm including culture and earth and cosmos and, you know, NASA and, you know, so big, big picture. Right. And so a lot of the, uh, the, uh, the things that we make that are in reference to things outside of ourselves, tend to tend to stay around longer and um i think do more than merely agitate or anger um and you know so it's like nobody's mad at nobody's really mad when nasa makes you know um its 10th rocket ship with uh improvements to it yeah because the reference is outer space it's jet propulsion it's mm-hmm. right like all of that is galvanizing all of these people to this work to make that happen. You see what I'm saying? And so that, so you're not upset with the change. But when, when it becomes reductionistic the way you're talking about and it flattens to a kind of person mm-hmm. as the only permissible kind of person, uh, there's nowhere to go from there. Yeah. 
There's only thing you can do is argue for it. I was going to say it, it's very much um, if you're if you're pitting anything against something else, like you have to pick a side. Like, that's right. I mean, you have to pick that, a side. That's what it comes down to, yeah. which is problematic, especially when the larger situation or the 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 more uh, helpful and healthy way when we're talking about things like critique to do it would be to just realize well there aren't sides mm-hmm. because this is not a debate it's not a fight it's not any of that it is like you said earlier it is a dialogical it's a dialogically constructed way mm-hmm. to get into what's going on which is bigger than yeah you know uh whichever two terms you want to kind of throw together in a binary. Yeah. And so one of the things your 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 axioms if you will would be like our common ontology. That is human beings have that in common. It's inescapable. We have common ontology. Now, I don't know what it's like to see the world through your eyes. I right. can never know that. I don't have access to that. Um we can share in conversation mm-hmm. the best of our perceptions as we come to understand them and find we agree to that extent. Mm-hmm. And that can be a lot. That can be intensely meaningful. Right. But um, if the stage is not set to observe outside of our experiences, mm-hmm. we can never get to that place. Right. Right. Because if my experience is not primary in our discussion, then your disagreement with me does not reduce anything I believe or yeah. think about the piece of our work right. or the conversation we're having or the sports team we're talking about. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So, so, and I think that's a big part of it. a huge part of it. And I, so I, you know, this is provocative, but if human beings um, are the center of everything, which I don't know that they are, um, it becomes atomistic because it keeps breaking down to well, who decides what the center is and what does it look like? And you know, it gets into all the problems we have. I mean, look at the way that, you know, uh, the discussions around racism right now. And if, you know, it's, it's horrible. Like there's horrible things that are happening, um, that have been happening for a long, long time. Yeah. Um, yeah. uh, but we're having experiences and narratives mediated to us. And all of those are, um, with whatever intentions there is. And, um, there's a lot of discussions like, is everybody just got true intentions? Has everybody got good intentions? Is everybody operating out of the same axiom? Like, does everybody assume that there's an objectivity to, to truth? And is like, what, what's the difference between a fact and truth? There might be a difference there. They may not be the same thing, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, what, you know, what, um, like, is there a value to poetry or is it mere facts? So we, we, cause we, because we seem to like and prefer narrative. We seem to prefer framing of information that confirms our biases and ensures our safety and uh, possibly to the detriment of the facts. Right. And so, so um, this is where I think art can help us because I think art can be true, factual, and, subject- and subjective and uh, poetic. Now, uh, one thing I would say is I, w- I would say that if 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 you've been if you're listening, you're really like steeped in art and design. You've you know gone to art school. Maybe you've had a lot of stuff, time to read about stuff, whatever. I think you hear that, and you're probably like, "Yeah, I get it. I mm-hmm. can see that." But if, uh, if if someone is coming at this conversation kind of as just the casual cultural observer of things that are loosely framed as art, what you said may not make any sense to them. Yeah. 
because of what we said previously. Right. They're kind of tied onto one thing. Oh, art is a, is a, is a, is a service and I get to go to a museum and just kind yeah. of see it. Yeah. It's a decadence. It's a, um, it's an add on. It's a, you know, it's, it's analogous to a bouquet of flowers, which I could throw away when I'm done. It's disposable. It's self-indulgent, right? Yeah, commodifiable. It's instrumental towards uh, making me look better when I go for this job interview because I wore this particular suit by Armani or whatever. Like, you know, whatever your um, reduction is, um, is not to say that those are not possibly relevant to you, Mm -hmm. significant, significant, like, how do you say it? Those are significant to you facts about the nature of the thing you're consuming, wearing, displaying, th- those are not disinvalidated. They're just not the only fact. And, and even to your earlier point, those may be facts about the thing that we're referencing, but it doesn't mean that it's the whole truth of the thing mm-hmm. we're talking about. And it doesn't determine all other like uh, kinds outside of that experience you're having with that one kind. Right, because if I, if I heavily believe that art is just a commodity... Um, and it gets bought and sold and auctioned, and that's what it is. Um, that doesn't that doesn't mean that uh, you can't see art as just an expression, mm-hmm. or that somebody else couldn't see art as um, you know a, a visual conversation mm-hmm. or something else. Like just because I hold yeah. that belief as primary doesn't mean it's there. Because like we were talking about the. the this frame, and this is the point I want to make sure people don't miss: is that the the frame of art is so much bigger than we usually give it credit for, Mm -hmm. um, which I think is one of the only ways we can really say what we're saying about critiques today is if art is more than mere commodity or mere expression or mere this, that, or the other. Which we've hit on, on, you know, just to keep reminding, like if you haven't listened, listen to other episodes, you'll you'll hit on this. And what I would say is um, these things are worth hitting at repeatedly, but from slightly tweaked perspectives right. so that there's an incremental increase to the, the kind of the thinking and the vision that it's um, um, the things that I understand the best have the most redundancy because they continue to seem to be confirmable as more true than, than not. Yeah. And so until something disrupts that or uh, sort of breaks in and says otherwise, like I, I hold those with an open hand with more confidence, mm-hmm. open hand, meaning I'm willing to have it taken out of my hand and replaced by something better. But until then, this seems to be holding and getting clearer. So gaining clarity on these issues. And so I'm looking at the world right now and you're seeing things like um, if the individual for like the last 20 years, let's say, has been paramount to references around the arts, well, the dissatisfaction has caused people to become disgruntled and the critique has become ever more pressurized um, to the point that there are discussions around like, um, policies to ensure safe critiques, mm. which means um, autonomy and agency is subdued or constrained to prior external assumptions that that have to somehow anticipate every kind of work that passes through a situation before yeah. it ever gets there, which means the work can never really do what it's supposed to do. Because the work has to have the space to do it. Just like the sunset has to have space to be the sunset that it's going to be. doesn't matter what I think about it. It's going to happen. And I, I have to be able to have my freedom to respond. I can be melancholic. I can be joyful. I can be blissful. I can be upset. I can be kissing my wife. I can be doing any number of things. But if I'm told prior to any given sunset that this is the only way I, I'm allowed to respond, 
well, then the 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 sunset has had its power neutered, right? Yeah, I mean, and that, so so then so then yeah, what, and and my my need to look at it has been erased, like erased. It, so it's on both sides. Not only has the sun lost its power to be seen as something, as anything, yep. uh, but also my looking at it serves no purpose. Right, right. And so yeah, so 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 then there's a loss of meaning. Mm-hmm. There's a loss of transformation. And we we dwindle further down into a kind of deadened state as people. And typically, what that produces is anger and bitterness. Yeah. So we're bitter and angry because we're we're still kind of peeking out the window and we see something, but we can't we can't make heads or tails of it, and we're not p- permitted to have whatever real real experience that may or may not be there because those are being curated away from us. They're being they're being mediated too much um, by um, some other metric or some other uh, epistemology that is uh, pre-assumed um, what is right and wrong or safe or not safe or, you know. And, and so so I think what you're seeing is um, the outflow of that is a lot of angry people. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, so the anger, um, I'm not saying is valid or disinvalid. I'm just saying that um, the effect of culture making and the, most positive sense is not, um, you know, it's not having its, its, its full say, if you will. Yeah. I think, you know, and, and, and if, and if folks might be kind of listening and saying, I don't know about that, I I would say like a good, what I, what I've been thinking about as you've been saying that is, uh, just, just go back and think about how you felt maybe like the second week of May, you know, once quarantine had really kind of hit its groove and you were like, man, I just really would like to go and get a burger. Yeah. Well, how did you act within your house to the the people you were around? Probably a little more testy. I mean, I yeah. was a bit more on edge because I just kind of wanted to get out. Yeah. Right. I wanted to be. Yeah. I wanted those constrained. structures to be dropped. Yeah. You know, the the constraining always increases yeah. pressure, yeah. and that pressure comes out somewhere. Yeah, it has to come out. Um, and it usually, I mean, I've experienced after experience in my own life. Usually it comes across as, you know, bitterness, anger, things like yeah. that. It rarely comes out as a positive thing. Right. And right now, like, I mean, you so like leading into an election, you know, November, like, oh, I don't want to chase this down too hard, but just to say that you're seeing a lot of pressure uh, for everyone and that anger is mounting. And so, so, okay, so what does that have to do with the critique? Well, I think there, if you remove, which, which is piggybacking on stuff we said before, full circle on this is um, we need to step back and reinstitute the ability to observe as unbiasedly as possible what's there. So we have a lot of people talking about uh, unconscious bias or without, you know, I would pull from someone that I admire. Uh, um, Cal Silvelt talks about, um, you know, the subconscious and then the preconsciousness and we've talked about this in the past and then, and then your conscious mind. And so uh, I think the preconscious state is helpful because it, it's sort of like uh, uh, there's no form thoughts raw. It's raw, percolating, rogue desire that is then funneled through uh, or uh, funneled through the mind and cultivated into formed thoughts, ordered thoughts, right? Ordered desires to the best of our ability. And the subconscious deals with um, displacing those ordered desires. Like they're, 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 it's like whatever we're not thinking takes a backseat and sort of has, still has its effect in the uh, subconscious mind. But the subconscious mind is still being uh, like a Bunsen burner 
uh, hit yeah. from the bottom, which is the pre-conscious mind. And so what kind of heat is that? What's it doing? Is it scorching the side of a desire you have that you don't, you don't know where all of a sudden, you know, one side of the marshmallow is looks like it's soft and hasn't been cooked in a fire, but the other side is charred and falling apart. Like, because, you know, we're, we're, we're you know, we're unaware. Mm-hmm. And so we talk about, you know, we talk about these kinds of things. And what I would say is in my full unbridled self is that we're, we're finite beings necessarily bound to uh, uh, spatial temporal reality. Um, meaning that inherently, uh, absolutely sets the stage for limitations. Mm. So we are already a constrained being by virtue of our physicality, uh, the, our common ontology, the kind of being that we are. So anthropologically, like that's what we are. And so we have to step back at times because we can't have it all uh, brought to our conscious mind. You know, we, we can't we can't do that. It was funny. I was watching a KMP episode called The Bully from like seven years ago. And the, the kid is bullying the other kid and he's explaining with full in the moment awareness of why he's doing everything he's doing. And he's, he's just he's just telling you, I'm doing this because I mean, like he's just articulating it. And you're like, what a strange world it would be if everybody was entirely aware of their motives. Right. And why and where it came from. What a strange world it would be. It's a, an experiment in a, in a comedy sketch that actually got to something that is like, I don't know. I don't know if we, so I, what I would say is I don't know that we're operating in that space as much as we're operating a lot of times in the opposite, which is the pre-conscious state. It's almost animalistic. Yeah, yeah. So, so what you're saying is, uh, you know, uh, a shared fact of all human beings is that we are born and we die. Yes. Um, and because of when those things happen and all of the other circumstances that surround it, mm-hmm. the, the where, the when, the how, the why, the whatever else goes yeah. into it, um, that means that we already cooked into us is kind of a, uh, a way that because of the world we were born into, the culture we are a part of, how we understand things, there's already kind of a, a default of sorts mm-hmm. that we're in. Yeah, and so stepping back actually can help us move away from that and get into a place where we can have a shared conversation. Yes, stepping back is to stepping back is to accept it. Okay, gotcha. Right. So stepping back is part of the acknowledgement of what kind of being that we are. Mm -hmm. We're not. We're not. We're not stepping into uh, uh, the the way we come to fullness is by not assuming that we can think it all and have it all. So this is a super not sexy word. Like this is not yeah, a sexy word that people like. If you oh. think it's non-sexy. <laughs> I mean, this is one of those things is like nobody's going to come in and be like, hey, today I would love for our critiques to be marked by humility. Yes. Like nobody's going to say that no. because it's just, you know, I mean, even as somebody who's bringing my work to be critiqued, I don't know if I'd want to hear that. Yeah. You know, I'd be like, no, I want you to actually like, I want you to have. I'd say things like, I want you to have a, a firm opinion on this, and I want yep. you to have some firm things. Yeah. But that still does not negate humility. Yeah. Right. The so, humility yeah. starts us off on That's a path. Right. So humility, humility, there's like the uh, self-imposed humility. You know, I'm going I'm to muscle up some humility. I'm going to try to posture myself. Right, right. I'm going to give you some external signifiers that say, I'm a pretty humble person. I'm going to talk quietly. You know, I'm going to be very... Like whatever it might be, right? Yeah. But then there's also just the humility that comes from like you just stepped in front of something way more awesome than you, mm-hmm. and you are crushed by it. Like you're like you've been humbled. 
your sense of self-aggrandizement has been brought into scale and you recognize that this other thing that's there is just, it's apples and oranges and, and you're not it. Yeah. So, um, but you can still contribute. But you can still contribute. Yeah. That's, or that's where that comes in, I think, real handy. It's not yeah. it's not I'm humble, therefore I'm negated. It's I'm yeah. humble, therefore I can actually step in in a real way. Yep. And I don't have to gesticulate or posture. Yep. I can just say, This is what I don't know. Yeah. And here's a thought and hope and you don't have to feel like, oh, I'm gonna be stupid now. That's right. Someone's gonna laugh at and me. And heaven forbid you may find it satisfying. Yeah. But the thing is, this, it feels dangerous because not everybody's going to operate that way. Mm-hmm. And so you, you you run the risk of being vulnerable. So what happens is everybody leans into the other, which is um, uh, um, <laughs> the more we try to become all-knowing, the more animalistic we become. Right. I know that. I know that's, that's going to rub for anybody who loves animals, and I love animals. But what I mean by that is whatever we see in common with animals is, is there and wonderful, but... There are points of departure. It's just undeniable. I don't have any animals volitionally putting on a podcast right. on Apple iTunes that you're listening to. Like, no matter how smart your dog is, it's not doing its own podcast. Right. And if it is, it's because you've brought it to them and you've put them in the position to bark on the microphone. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, and you've shot cameras and you've beautified it, you've mediated it to where the proposition becomes truer to my mind. But it's not possible without that. And so what I'm saying is whatever makes us that kind of being that we can do podcasts and we can send rockets in outer space, that difference is what I want to talk about. And what I'm saying is uh, that recognition is something. See, the only reason why NASA would send things in outer space because they recognize that there's something greater than themselves. Mm. You see what I'm saying? You, yeah. can't, you can't do it. There's no reason to go otherwise. Um, not really. Not that sustains a whole institution to build rocket ships. Yeah, I mean, and engineers to imagine that there's a poetic hypothetical that's there. What if there's another civilization? There's the poetry. There's the there's all the facets that come with that. You can't do that if it's the other way around. If you're already the pinnacle, all you can do is double down on Mm -hmm. asserting you're the pinnacle. And when you fail to do that, you become more disgruntled and you tear down other people to continue to assert that. That's the whole discussion on supremacy of any kind. Yeah. Is that when human beings start to do this, they default to animal animalistic behavior. So so uh, violent tendencies kick up, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, when people are oppressed or when they're oppressing like. In both senses, it, it, it goes to these base defaults. And the thing is, the arts of all kinds can mediate a, um, a experience that, that reinforces this fact or actually moves us into something that, that, um, that flourishes uh, human beings. Like um, There's like the idea of shalom or something like that where like humans flourish, and it's not the ceasing of violence um, but it's the uh, it's the increase of peace and the increase of joy and the increase of uh, human relationship and the the uh, exponential uh, cultured expressions that follow from an uh, exponentially increasing yeah. flourishing. Right. So we'll, at best, a lot of us, what we can do is just a ceasefire. A ceasefire is not. Necess- like it might be peace, but it's not shalom. It doesn't bring fullness to it. Right. And so those two things for me are helpful categories in thinking about this. So stepping back is to acknowledge our station in life and say, I need to have a mediatorial category for observing that which is in front of me. Hmm. I need to have, I need to, de- I need to have some, I need to have personal experiences and then depersonalize them enough that I can evaluate what's there. 
uh, so that um, for, for so that any number of things can occur. I can support uh, an artist in the studio. I can um, actually gain some conscious awareness of why this is impacting me this way. I can then talk about it and think about it when I'm removed from the gal the gallery. I'm back outside again with fresh air, so that it might import into my soul, and I, I come back to the next studio practice painting with a, a more informed understanding of the mystery and the power and the sort of the enchanting way uh, moving with mucking with material uh, is satisfying or, you know, any, any number of things that there, here's the thing. The world really is that good that there's, uh, um, there's no question about the value of mucking around. Yeah. Um, but if you don't have that, the mucking around is so pressurized to be everything because you're supposed to be everything that you're doomed to fail and be miserable. And there'll never be enough feedback, uh, that you can have that will change that fact for you. Um, there won't be discourse. There won't be space. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So, so big picture zoomed into the studio. The studio has to have the studio critique has to have continuity with the world outside of itself. It has to have an eye towards that, which is bigger than us. Um, you know, that's why, you know, so, you know, that's why I, I, I think sometimes I like Constable's paintings, uh, even his, his small sketches. It's like this grand scale of a landscape and, uh, English landscape with these clouds erupting. It's like, um, uh, make something more perceptually manageable to my eye. And then in its own kind, in its own way is its own kind, has its own kind of grandeur, but also points to the grandeur that I see as a commonplace experience outside my window or when I walk outside every day. Mm. And it's in, it's in the, the means and ends kind of dynamism of a work of art that I think the most enriching, you know, points of reference occur. And that's, that's, that's like the value of it. Like that's the beauty of it. It's like, it, that's, that's the, you know, uh, uh, transformational quality or whatever. Um, but if we shut ourselves off to that, we may feel enlarged in a, in a particular environment, but it's a false reality, mm -hmm. you know, because right now we're vulnerable to COVID. Mm -hmm. We're not, we're not ultimate. Yeah. Yeah. We're not, we're not. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, and, and we're struggling with that because we've been so subjective and um, uh, sort of overly personalized that we've defaulted to a kind of uh, almost like a mindless collectivism at times that is like, please, someone tell me what to do and think. Mm -hmm. And so we for, we're foregoing agency. And I just think that there's, a, there's um, the, the perfect picture for me is unity and diversity with human beings, mm -hmm. that our common ontology allows us to understand our unity uh, as a fact and our diversity deals in the particular manner of each given individual as they are, whether we prefer it or not. And in there is a, uh, interplay of unity and diversity, not diversity, not, not just unity, but both end. Mm -hmm. And so we keep landing in these ditches and then, um, that gets bore out in the studio critiques. So you're, there's like ways where people are being pressurized to make certain kind of art and not other kind of art because certain kind of art deals with reference directly to what, a lot of people think is most important right now. Well, um, there's a lot of things that are still important that like right. city plumbing is still important yeah. even when, when there's protest on the streets. Like protest matters greatly, but also engineering and structuring the spaces that we can march down matters as well. And those occur at different rates and they require different mindsets. They require different considerations. And what we don't want to do is 
demolish art and design in the moment um, by being short-sighted and not assuming that there's more to this than there is. Mm-hmm. So again, how do we get to that? Well, we got to step back. You got to yeah. observe. And that's, uh, I mean, that's tough, right? Because uh, in several of the classes I teach, uh, one of the big topics we talk about is reflection. Uh, because in a, in, a, in a super fast-paced environment, reflection is something that we usually kind of toss aside. Because I don't really have time for that. You know, I still I got these other tasks to do. I got these other things to do. <clears throat> Not understanding uh, how full the act of reflection can be on the things that you do, right? So if I uh, if, if if I'm doing some some work around my house and maybe I'm putting up some drywall, well, if I put up the first piece and it looks like trash and I don't take time to think about why it didn't work. Mm-hmm then my second piece is going to look the same, mm-hmm. right? It's going to be the same. And, and, and what that does, it'll just compound problems to the point where I'm either just going to give up entirely at that project I'm doing at the house, or I will have to do so much more work at the end than I needed to if I would have just taken some time to stop and step back. Yeah, Because somebody could look at that, and they could be completely subjective and say, no, I think you did a good job. But that doesn't change the experience of what I just did because I voided the act of reflection right. in the process. Right. And this and, and there are some places where maybe reflection might not be as critical, but the arts are not one of those places. Yeah. They they cannot be. Uh, for a few of the reasons that we've talked about. One, the pervasiveness of them. All right. I, I if something is in such abundance throughout everything that we come in contact with, I cannot afford to skip reflection. Yeah. Also, on a personal sense, if I have committed uh, time and resources and energy to move into a direction of doing this type of work or this type of practice, then I owe it to myself to be reflective on my work so that that time, energy, and effort is worth something, yeah, right? That I've, yeah. that I've like, just doing yeah. the best for me. Right. Um, and to do that, um, I have to have some sort of reflection, which is always going to involve me asking questions of other people. Mm-hmm. Like, well, what do you think? Yeah. Right? Which is basic of our stuff. I think it's how most of us kind of started out. You know, our first experiences with critique as kids were probably doing some drawings, taking them to a parent or a mm-hmm. friend or a, a sibling and saying, what do you think? Yeah. You know, and most of the time I'd say that those were fairly productive uh, in a lot of times, you know, because they'd say, oh, I think your use of color here is great. And I think your lines are real vibrant. And mm-hmm. this is a nice scene. And, oh, I like how you've interpreted. I mean, there's actual like pretty solid frameworks for yeah. for critique in those spaces because it allows us to get somebody else's viewpoint, mm-hmm. which is still subjective, but can rely on objective standards. Mm-hmm. Um so again, it's kind of enlarging all those terms in a lot of ways. Then the reflectivity that we have in it is a huge part of what goes into it. Because without it, we just what just keep going forward. Yeah, it's raw. It's it's like raw. Uh, it's prior assumed assumptions always being confirmed, regardless of what's in front of you. This either does or does not confirm my point of view. My point of view is right. Move on. Just, yeah. You know, and just keep keep replaying that, and so that perpetually dissatisfies the work. The work actually becomes, and ha- we've seen this, uh, a lot of work starts to fall apart or become so derivative because the uh, the motives for making it are predicated on something else. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I just know that this gets me a lot of hits on Instagram, so I'm gonna keep making these kinds of drip paintings because I know drip paintings that are blue, black, and white um, get you know a thousand likes on Instagram yeah. in. You know, there's a certain cross section of interior decorators that say this is what's going to go into homes, and then there's a cross section of people that say this is what art is in 
there you have it. That's a ecosystem that operates along its own lines. And if that's what you want, like that's there, you're free to do that. Um, but there also needs to be the freedom to not do that. And, um, you know, there has to be room for work that doesn't deal with most, most directly yeah. uh, difficult or challenging in this moment. You, you want, you want that, you, you know, um, uh, like, um, oh gosh, what was the, uh, so I think, uh, Valerie Castle Oliver, the uh, curator from the VMFA, we had her on our documentary, the build, uh, the builder it was awesome. She curated or, uh, collected a sign, a protest sign by one of the monuments that said the, it said the sign said, uh, rumors of war was not a rumor. Mm. And so I think in a wise curatorial move, they collected that into the VMFA's collection. Yeah. I said, that's a great example of, of discourse, conversation, wherewithal, understanding all, you know, sort of expedited in that process. So like, I think that's really important. Um, Having said that, that doesn't mean that that's what everybody has to do now, right? Yeah. Like, and, and I think most people get that, but it's to say that, like, that's a singular moment in a really, really, uh, I think, thoughtful and smart decision made by the right curator, right? But, you know, you can't go and remake that sign again. Right. But here's the thing. There's also a lot of, there's, there's a lot of importance to the world that must be cared for. And so um, what it should do is, is, um, confirmed to us the importance of, of art making, whether it's urgent and quick or whether it's a, a one hour painting in a studio, like w- this stuff really does matter. You know, it, it does speak, it does give voice. Um, but we need, you know, we need to, um, I think there has to be some artists and makers that depressurize the moment and create spaces, safe spaces, if you will, for reflective dialogue. Mm-hmm. with reference to things that are being made and shaped and designed that have reference to larger things. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of a call to say we need uh, people that are thinking past the moment as much as we need people thinking in the moment. Um, we need. Here's my big rub, and this will get me into trouble with some folks, but we, we, you actually can't have a reset. Mm-hmm. I mean, short of a nuclear blast, right? There's not a reset. Right. That's why I think Shalom, the concept of Shalom is maybe more interesting and I don't want to go too hard in that. But I, what I mean by that is just the, the idea that, that the way forward is the way forward. Mm-hmm. The way forward uh, has to come through um, a kind of at a minimum, an altruistic recognition that we are not all that there is and that there's more in that. Um, uh, as soon as we start working together to do that, um, the further we get from the things that we'd, We'd like to not be there. But if we try to like maintain this kind of um, ultimacy within human beings, we're going to continue to suppress one person, marginalize one person. So like marginalizing someone doesn't solve marginalizing. Yeah. You can't, it's, it's oxymoronic. It's, it's contradictory in terms. And I know by saying that I'm, I'm sounds like I'm explaining something and employing, you know, a divisive strategy, but uh, the, sort of facts will continually to bear out that that's the case. It's like, you can't undo our common ontology. Yeah. You can't undo what a human is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know people are trying. You got to ask yourself why though? Is it because of uh, good suppositions or faulty ones? Maybe faulty suppositions around all of it is leading us to 
uh, aspirations that are predicated on faulty assumptions. And so what if the uh, suppositions or the assumptions we're making are better grounded? Would you still, you know, long to not be in your body or, you know, be uh, anti-human or whatever? You know what I'm saying? Like, these are just questions. Like, so having this conversation is confrontational at this point. Us just talking like this is confrontational. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it, but it's like, I, I feel like if we, we don't at least try, um, we're silenced, you know, like we're made to communicate. Mm-hmm. We're made to dialogue and to reflect. That's the point. That's why I said it's like we're we're finite beings. Therefore, we have to contemplate. It's a, a humility check for us Yeah, because we're not infinite beings. We don't know it all at once. In spite of what AI can give us, in spite of what like the Internet can give us, we can't actually process that the full implications or magnitudes of uh, you know, I could barely do one thing at a time. You know, yeah. so, I mean, like the average person is like, uh, uh, what am I doing again? Like, like we have to build uh, reflectivity into our practice. So that's where we've talked about it in the past. Observation, verbalizing what you see and observe, mm-hmm. really slowing down, which is what COVID did for a lot of us. Yeah. And I said it before. So, you know, observation leads to interpretation, leads to significance. What does it mean to me? And in that, I think having a reference to the world helps to bring a check and balance to the studio critique. Yeah. So that you don't get so high on yourself in the studio critique that you are wrongly enlarged and left vulnerable to deflation, Mm -hmm. to emotional downturn, to depression. And so sitting back and just observing, just practice observing, Mm-hmm. What are the effects? What are they doing? What's that? Why does that light shine across that camper outside? And it looks like baby blue. On I'm looking at a literal camper right now, and it looks like white baby blue on this like beige camper. And it's like, huh? I don't know why it's doing that, but what it does do is cause me to have to either look more mm-hmm. and think more, and which is getting me off myself, or just go not right now. Don't have the time. Yeah. So what's a critique? Well, we're setting apart time to do this. So then why aren't we doing it? Why aren't we cultivating discourse? Mm. You know, it's got to be asked. Yeah, and I think, you know, this is this is the space where it's just good to remind yeah. all of us um, that uh, all the critiques that we've ever been a part of where we have not enjoyed them have been the ones that have neglected what you're saying. Yes. They're the ones that strictly go into, I like it, I don't like it, mm-hmm. right? It's the, it's again, picking a side. It's yeah. pitting one against the other. Yeah. Here's the ones that do like it. Here's the ones it's that do It's culturalism. It's the sassy next yeah, you know it's the exactly. fashion. It's the yeah. sassy part of the fashion industry where it's like this like person who bears the standard of being the most sassy person there, mm-hmm. and and everybody's afraid of them. It's like who wants to like live in fear, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, like who wants to really anybody who wants to occupy that position has got rot in their soul. <laughs> like you yeah. got to be a pretty. Uh, there's got to be some tough stuff going on on the inside to 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 hold that position. Well, and the flip side of it is, uh, because those those uh, personalities exist, um, there are classes I've taught where I always knew there were certain types of students who would miss critique days yep. on purpose. They yep. were just their missed days because they 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 couldn't stand against that stuff. Yeah, um, they just were not. They were not built in a way or didn't care to operate in such a way where they wanted to have to confront that. Mm -hmm. And so if there's space for that within a critique Mm -hmm. uh, that is Mm non-constructive, you got to take that away. Yeah. And the only way to do that 
is then to say, hey, well, we, we actually are going to do some things first. So um, I think one of the hardest things to do is before you have an opinion is to actually find reason for that opinion. Yeah. It's real, yeah, it's yeah. real easy to have gut checks and just yeah. be like, I don't like it. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm hungry. Uh, yeah. I want this. And I think it goes back to kind of the animalistic, the, just the urges. Yeah. You know, where so the easiest thing pushes. to do, yeah, the easiest thing to do to your point is tear down. That's the tear down is easy. It takes no work. No work. Critiquing it, it comes out of that pre-conscious state, man. It's like there's something in us that is more inclined to tear down and self-justify and uh, jockey for our own justification through the tearing down. It's yeah. really hard to build up. Well, that's the thing is, uh, you know, if if you've ever been around, you know, a couple kids and some blocks, you've experienced this, right? Because one will be building something, the other one comes through and just like Godzilla's the thing, yeah. right? Just yep. destroyed. And um, what happens? Well, the one who destroyed it is just kind of gleeful, yep. and the one who was making it is is dis- destroyed. Yep. they're crushed. Yep. Right? Yeah, um, yeah, and so like that's just magnified as we get older and we get a bit more wise in the way we do things. We get a bit more savvy in it. Um, if you allow that to be the structure of the critique, it's still going to be the same thing as those little kids playing with blocks. Yep, there's going to be the one who's just like, "Oh, I'm gleeful at the destruction," and the other who is destroyed at the destruction they caused. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, if nothing else, there's a place where we have to say, we have to figure out what a productive critique looks like. So if we, if we take all of the discussion from the first part and we say, yeah, this is a necessary thing, we mm-hmm. have to have it. It's kind of like oxygen to mm-hmm. a fire yep. for the fire to spread. It's got to have that oxygen. That's right. We cut that off. The fire dies. That's right. It has no use. It has no purpose. It has no yep. meaning. It has, it has no life. Burns itself up. Burns itself up. Consumes itself. Yep. Um, but once you introduce the oxygen, it can grow and then you can figure out what you do with it. Yeah. Um, you know, it can, but it can, it can have the life that it's supposed to have. Um, an observation is tough because mm-hmm. I think because we have so much stuff always in front of us, because we, um, as you were saying, since we're humans, we're born into like a common ontology, you know, like I, I have eyes, mm-hmm. I have hands, I have ears, mm-hmm. I have a nose, I have ways of perceiving the world. Mm-hmm. Therefore, that perception becomes a huge assumption into other areas. Like, because I have seen things my whole life, therefore, I know what things look like, mm-hmm. which makes observation difficult because yeah, our prior right. assumption is, oh, I've seen that. That's it's right. Like, but you may not have looked. Yeah, yeah, you may not have looked at it. You may not have, have slowed down with your... Uh, you may not have been thinking with your eyes, which is more probably if I'm I'm assuming here, but which is more in terms of your definition of observation yes. would be that not yeah. just oh that wall is white yeah, but it's like no, but what is it? What is it really? Yeah, what is it doing? Look? What is it? How is it? How is it? And you know, so and here's the thing: the obtaining of or the intimating towards that one to two things you'll find is the most mundane things are less mundane than you thought. It's more right. you that are dull than that, mm-hmm. right? And the other thing is um, it sets the stage to have a better way to build. Because here's the thing. There's a, like when you go to see it. So when a building is demoed, oftentimes there's plans for a rebuild. Right. Oftentimes that's already built into the the, the proposition. It's like we're, te- we're tearing this down and we're going to build. Um, we have some notion of what that's going to be. I know there's times where there's a condemnable building and, and they just tear it down because it's not safe. Yeah. So I understand the, the dialectical tension there. But what I'm seeing a lot of right now in society is um, we are going to tear everything down. But I, what I'm not seeing is what, what are we going to build? So I'm not opposed to tear down, but it's like, what are we going to build in this place? And because, um, because propositions for what's going to be built mo- can be as motivating as, um, as the anger over what needs to be taken down. 
And what that can do is give people a, a greater equilibrium in terms of their emotional states about the world right now. Mm-hmm. And I think that can happen in the, the studio. I know some people will push back and even could be frustrated with like me or you saying that, but that at a minimum, that's my thought on it. I'm, I'm taking a risk and you know, you're taking a risk and we're coming together and putting forward and saying like, there is a world that can be built. Right. There is, there is, I, I would, I would sit down and have that conversation with folks. I, would, I like constructive conversations. I'm willing to play a, a, a humble backseat part in that. I've done that. Um, you have too. Like, so, um, but it is an invitation. It's like we got to figure out how to get out from under the polarized pressure a little bit. And I think it's real simple in terms of the steps to take. It's recognizing that you can't have it all, you can't know it all, and therefore you can't be absolutely right um, about your, st- your stance based on mediated experiences authorized by other people, mm-hmm. narratives, constructs, right? Um, and the urgency of urgency of now, like the, the triple urgency um, is as urgent as any other time in some ways, um, which is to say that every, every moment is urgent for the, 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 the people that are living it. Life is always in the balance. So, you know, Stepping back is not a passive move. No. Um, it could be a wise move. That I mean by stepping back is like distancing yourself enough to get a handle on what's happening to go forward well. And I think studio critiques need that. So, I mean, I think, you know, um, you know, when you think about coming full circle, like students coming in the classroom, it's like check your knowledge at the door and see what you can learn by stepping back and observing what you still don't know how to do. Um, but also... Come in expecting to be like, I think when I go into studios at my best, when I do a studio visit, I come in open to the real experience Mm -hmm. of the real work in front of me with the real artist. Like I come in open to actually being, I'm open to being impacted. Yeah. And the tools I use are this disciplined state of I'm here to observe in this general sense, what effects are there, what um, uh, manner of composition is there, what manner of material is there, what manner of concept is there, you know, what are the ideas, how, how well do I observe or experience that, and I'm open to, I'm not even worried about if I'm going to like it or not. I'm just open to what's going to happen, yeah. and w- because invariably something will happen, Um. And then I'll have I'll have that to go on, you know. I have that to discuss with the studio mate or the artist or the designer. We will have a real discussion because I'm not bringing my my prior assumption is to strive to be unbiased as much as I can, with the expectation that there is something there that needs its its space to do what it does. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, depending on the intentions of the maker and so on, then we can have a focused discussion or a general discussion based on whatever time permits and what they want. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think the practice of that, the byproduct is discourse. Yeah. I mean, and, it has to be, yeah, right? it has to be. And so so discourse um, can't be thrown out with activity. I'm all for activity. I'm all for urgency. I think there's things that need to be tended to and addressed. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and, and so it's a both end for me. It's like, and we need to have discourse. Right. You cannot just impose change on people. They will not. We don't change that way. Yeah. Yeah. The imposition of change doesn't change. Um, yeah. The, uh, I mean, I think there's, um, 
there's a lot, there's a lot in that, um, that, you know, you just kind of have to sit with, right. You just kind of have to, um, let soak in, but also, um, it may be weird when you're talking about discourse and dialogue. Uh, these may be terms that a lot of folks haven't really considered mm-hmm. uh, with critique. Yeah. Because it may not have ever been that way yep. for them. It may have just been completely uh, yeah. like didactic. Yep. I will tell you the critique. Yeah. You are not involved. Yeah. I think one of the most common things I've uh, said over the years uh, to students and even professionals is that you're an active part of the critique Mm -hmm. that just like, if I'm leading a critique, it doesn't mean that I'm the only voice, right? It means that I might, I might be the voice that you're, you're asking because I'm external of the work. Sure. A hundred percent. Yep. Um, but if, if you're not being, if you're not entering into discourse with me, if you're not being dialogical with me, like the critique, doesn't exist yeah. in a sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's not a critique yeah. at that point. Right. Not it's in the just way a that criticism. Yeah, it's just criticism. And not in the way that it's con- consumer criticism. It's not in the way that I think we've wanted it or romanticized it. It's like um uh you know, like when you come to do science or or you know, and I know that even that's contended, but like the petri dish has epistemic constraints to its structure, its shape and its scope. And so it, it has both limitations, but also um, possibilities for what can be known through that means, right? Or, you know, the, the microscope, right? Its mm-hmm. form, its structure, it has a shape to it. It's been tasked with a goal of obtaining information a certain kind of way. And I'm not saying the critique is restrained to that level, but it does have a shape to it. It can. And um, when it's understood more as a tool for discourse and obtaining of awareness about mediatorial things like a painting or a sculpture or a performance or, you know, in in the sort of um, reference to the world, if you will. Yeah. Which includes the self. um, A lot can happen there. But if the critique is reduced to personal confirmation and, and prior assumptions being upheld before I ever show you the thing. That's where you've gotten this shift where people are like, I'm expressing myself as a right that must be respected. Well, there's no discourse in that. There's no, nothing to talk about because this isn't like a thing that like I already see you. So I already understand what you're saying to me possibly. Cool. You already got it from you. Like why, why make the thing? And yeah. if, if it doesn't, possibly point to more. And I think the hope for a lot of artists secretly is like, I, I hope this alludes to more than yeah. just myself, but it's too scary to say that, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Like, like, you know, I know a lot of painters that are like, I hope this alludes to more than just my self expression, but they're afraid to say it. And what they're hoping for is like, I hope this steps into a conversation with these painters I've been learning about in history. Yeah. Like, I hope, I hope that it can sort of be, thought of along the lines of certain people. And I hope that maybe this hallway will hold this piece and people will look at it. I hope it's like you just keep walking that out and you got all those hopes, but they've been turned inward and pressurized. And it's like, if you're the standard, why make the painting? Yeah. If you're always the benchmark, if it only, only points to the artist only, and it doesn't point outward to something else. Yeah. Well, you know, at some point, we we get it and we're we're just done and we move on, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, and I, I I don't know any artist who really wants to be that disposable. Yeah, you know with their work, yeah. they don't want it to be that disposable. Yeah, um, you know they're, um, 
I've met very few people who have gone into the arts altruistically to just be like, I just want, you know, people don't have to know my name mm -hmm. and I'm okay if they just enjoy what I do. Yeah. You know, I think folks are like, I want them to enjoy what I do, yeah. but I also want them to know my name. Yeah. You know, I want, want there to be something bigger and more to the work I'm doing that pushes this to mean more across space and time and things like yeah. that. Yeah. And I think that's a fair thing to desire. Yeah. Um, because I think it comes from a real place. Right. Um, because it, it really does allude to the impact, uh, the power, the beauty, mm -hmm. and the role of art as a pervasive force within the world, history, and culture. Yeah, I think that's an interesting, you brought up a sidetrack for me for maybe another day, but like thinking about the artisan who makes, it's the sort of the person who crafts the, the table. Yeah. Is okay. Like there, there's a high volume of person that actually is cool with not being none at all. Right. But I think I would, I would push back on that and say a lot of those folks though, I think because of the way we have kind of defined things over the last couple hundred years, I think they would feel like they're excluded from being called artists. Well, no, so that's what I was going to say. So, so if you lay out the land, so it's like proportion, it's like there's a cross section of, of makers that um, are comfortable or actually really, really are good with, it's almost inherent to the genre is like that I'm not going to be known widely. And this is where some people I think have said in a hyperbolic sense that artists, if you, if you take the logical ends of, of an artist to its own end, it's about celebrity. Mm. So, so those to me are polarized um, realities that exist because of a lack of discourse, as a, because of a lack of uh, a big enough vision of the world that would not discount the work on on the left side of things, if you will, the the uh, the crass crass person or whatever, but also check the rogue celebrity person who's like, ultimately this is about my name being known, yeah. right? Both of those I think in some ways can miss the mark. It's like um, I because I, I I you know think of the uh, I mean we made the builder. To say, hey, the guy building the wall you don't know about is an artist, yeah. right? Yeah. So, um, so there's a humility that's inherent to the medium. That's great. I don't think I don't think an artist has to be known to make things, in that sense, in the celebrity sense. But they do need. To, this is the builder. They do need to be known, though. Yes. Right. And so I think the celebrity sense being brought into uh, proportion will find satisfaction in actually being known, mm -hmm. not celebrity known. Yeah. And so uh, that also will change the manner of skills and expressions that are utilized. And what you'll find then is we don't have to polarize because we, we, we start to become community in how we learn from each other. Because what's at stake is not pushing, like you're pointing out, this person over here down saying, well, not only are they not known, they're not an artist, right? That's, yeah. that's part of the problem. Uh, because what an artist is, is me over here, at this elite space with my accolades and getting my celebrity, which means everybody else below me is, is trash, you know, in order for me to actually stand on them. Yeah. Right. Like that's a problem that mm -hmm. has had definitely shaping impact. This is, this is, this is what I mean when I say, perhaps you're trying to solve problems out of faulty assumptions. Mm -hmm. So see, if we don't check the ground, we, we can say like what we've been saying and doing is like that whole deal is messed up. Yeah. The person making the table is an artist. Heck yeah. They're a designer. They're a maker. So for me, art, design, and making are all together, as, as are for you, right? Yeah, yeah. 
So, and there it's, it's, it known and be known is not talking about celebrity. Mm. Right. So, right. um, now somebody may accidentally, uh, rise to a high volume of people knowing who they are and you know, that just happens. Right. But More if that's the, yeah, but if that's the driver, um, I don't know, man, I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's like you becoming a celebrity possibly is not, not the right kind of big enough thing. It's like, mm-hmm. um, maybe it needs to be more thoughtful constructs towards the ends of, um, you know, the, the, is the betterment of society going to happen because you're famous? Yeah, probably not. Probably not. <laughs> right. Yeah. If Mar- Dr. King became famous after the work, not prior to it. So the betterment of the work mm-hmm. led people to become aware of who he was. Yeah. When you invert that, you're util- using people for your selfish gain. Mm-hmm. What does it look like for artists to not operate that way? Those that do. Not everybody does. You know what I'm saying? Um, and what do we build? Mm-hmm. You know, what are we making? What does it mean to be a painter right now? Um, yeah. Those are big questions. Big questions. And what is it that we need to be able to answer big questions? Well, we need to be able to step back to observe and maybe have a little bit of critique, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> so it's, it, it's huge. And I think that, you know, we've, there's a lot of things that we've covered today. Yeah. A lot of stuff we've talked about. Vomit. Sorry. Uh, it's all over the place. Uh, but what I would encourage you to do is, um, you know, it, two things. Spend some time with what we've talked about. Go back, re-listen to some parts or something like that. If there are yep. parts that kind of were intriguing or maybe Take were notes. inflammatory to you, you know, just listen again, right? Yeah. Um, but also hit us up. Yeah. Talk to us because just like we're talking about here, we want this to be a, a something grounded in discourse, not just yeah. between the two of us here in the studio, yeah, yeah. Um, and not just a dialogue between the two of us here in the studio, but with the larger audience, the larger our world. So, yeah. uh, please hit us and up. It's, it's worth saying. I mean. The opinions that we express are our thoughts and opinions is, yeah. is Ryan Letero and Gareth Blackwell. Like, and that's Chaco Art Speak. And we, you know, we're, we're still learning people. We're still feeling people. We're, so we're, we're trying to figure it out and we're bringing, I think, what the, the best of what we can bring in a palatable way. And uh, as this is just one facet of how we are interacting in these discussions. I mean, we're neighbors, makers, designers. We're doing a lot of different things. This is just one avenue. It's not the only avenue. Right. So we're not we're not feeling like this has to be. Yeah. So um so yeah, do do hit us up. There's a lot to talk about there. And um, you know, hopefully we'll have more discussion. Yeah, definitely. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Uh we love you guys out there. You're a fantastic audience and we will catch you next time. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Shaco Art Speak, a production of Shaco Art Space. We are an independent, nonprofit art gallery in Richmond, Virginia. We can be found online at shacoartspace.com and in real life in historic Shaco Bottle.